first of all, we kind of want to acknowledge for folks that, yeah, these are difficult conversations, but it's a good thing for you to be having them now because that it's going to be much more challenging if you have to have these decisions in an emergency or in a crisis where you have to make decisions really quickly and everybody's super emotional. I'm Danica Kluth, a grad student living in Fort Collins, Colorado, and you are listening to the Vance Grow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we do part two of the Memento Mori series, which roughly translates to Remember You Will Die. Today, I invited Dr. Brian Carpenter of Washington University to come in and talk about a very unique class that he delivers to students. It is, what will your life be like when you are 64? Now, Dr. Carpenter will get into why they chose 64 and the impact that it has on young people. But really, the takeaway from this entire conversation is, can you imagine what your life will be like decades into the future? This is a fascinating and really twisty-turny conversation where Dr. Carpenter explains things about the aging process that you might not ordinarily think of. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but you know that we record legacy interviews right here in the studio. And if you were interested and live in the St. Louis area, we have just two slots open for me to record over the Thanksgiving weekend. We knew that there were a lot of people in town with family members, and so we opened up that weekend to be a time when you could come in and record their family stories, their wisdom, and their values. And uh, there's just two slots open. So if you're interested in having me interview them over the Thanksgiving holiday, go to LegacyInterviews.com. All right, without further ado, let's head to the interview with Dr. Brian Carpenter. Dr. Brian Carpenter, welcome. Good morning. To the podcast. Glad to be here, Vance. Um, is youth wasted on the young? Some yes, some no. Uh, it's, uh, any age is probably wasted on people in that age. It probably depends more on the people than the age, to be honest with you. Um, I think there are certain things that young people would benefit from knowing that they probably can't know until they're older, just because you live your life and you gain experience and perspective that you're not going to have when you're 15, 25, 35. That's not to say that young people can't be wise. And sometimes young people can be more wise than old people. So old people don't have any lock on wisdom, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me that I didn't realize was that your body is going to age, right? Like you feel young Every experience that you've had throughout all of your youth is I just keep getting stronger, faster, more yeah. vibrant. Yeah. And then one day you wake up and you're like, oh, it took me longer to recover from that illness or that hangover or that whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those aches and pains, they start sneaking in and your body just doesn't do the things that it used to do as you get older. And that's one of the first things that I think strikes people about aging is that they notice that their body which has been their friend for so many years, done everything they wanted it to do for so many years, just isn't quite the same any longer. And that starts at a pretty young age. Your body starts growing older, you know, well, from the moment you're born, of course, but it doesn't work as well as it used to starting from a pretty young age. And that can be really shocking for people. Yeah. I mean, I remember I was uh, working as a deckhand on a ship by the, at the beginning of the year when I was working there, I just finished college. And by the time I was done working, I realized like there are things about this job that are a lot harder 
and I, it was really because I was aging, right? I, w- I was getting better at my job, but like the fatigue of being up all night, those kind of things eventually wear down on you. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I think people aren't always uh, ready for that change because when you've had the good fortune to be in a body that does everything that you want it to for a long time, when it doesn't, it can be a little bit jarring. It can kind of take you aback to think, wait a minute, this this thing is supposed to be doing everything I wanted to and it's not doing it any longer. That's a real surprise for some people. So you teach a class at Wash U about um, when I'm 64, right? Why 64? Oh, I know. I know. We go back and forth on the title of that course all the time. You know, we started teaching this class eight years ago now. This will be our eighth year teaching it this, this academic year. And at the time, we we wanted a catchy course title that would attract people's curiosity and, and wonder. And we were slyly referencing the Beatles tune, which turned out not to be really useful because most of the college they don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> get the reference. Um, but it's also been true that sixty four, which you know, people traditionally think of old age or have thought of old age at starting at 65, because that's when people become eligible for Medicare and when people used to be able to start taking their full Social Security. So there were administrative logistical reasons why 65 was the benchmark for the beginning of old age. But that was a long time ago when that was the case. Um, And now 65 is not old anymore. So when we're thinking about a course title, that is going to communicate that that you're going to be signing up for a course about old people and older adults and aging when I'm 64 just doesn't make sense any longer. But we're reluctant to kind of give it up because it's got such resonance with so many people. So if you've got other ideas for a course title, we'd be all ears because we need to think of something that's going to um, be catchy, but also communicate to an 18 year old Oh, this is a course about growing older. It strikes me when you say that uh, 65 isn't old anymore. Why not? Why why has that changed? Uh, for several different reasons, I think. Um, number one, probably the biggest one, is that life expectancy has increased dramatically over the last even 50, but definitely 100 years. 50 years ago, average life expectancy was in the 70s. Um, now, the average life expectancy in the United States is around 82 years old. And when we're standing in front of a group of college first-year students, the, based on the demographers' research, we can tell them that half of them will live to see their 100th birthday. Half of the 18-year-olds will live to see their 100th birthday. So. Part of the reason why 65 isn't old anymore is that you've got so many more people who are living to be 80, 90, 100. We used to talk about centenarians as being the oldest people, and you're too young to remember this, but there was a a, a segment on the Today Show many years ago where the weather guy, Willard Scott, used to highlight people around the United States who turned 100. You can't do that anymore because so many people are turning 100 that it's not a big deal anymore. And now the scientists have, they're still studying the centenarians because they're unusual people in lots of ways. But now the scientists are studying the super centenarians, the people who are living to be 115 and 116. Um, so 65, when you think about old age, if you're going to live to 112, 65 is 
barely middle-aged. So 65 isn't really that old any longer. So let's talk about this class then. You're you're bringing college freshmen in and you're getting them to sign up for a class that is, in effect, like, remember, you're going to get old. Maybe even you're going to die, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Do kids want to sign up for this class? Uh, we are over-enrolled every semester, which still is surprising to us. We usually have 75 to 80 first-year students in the class and usually a wait list of more people who are interested in getting in the class. Um, and they take it for a variety of reasons. You know, some of them have uh, grandparents who are still alive. Many of them have grandparents who are still alive and had good experience with their grandparents or they did volunteer work at a nursing home when they were in a high school. So they've already got some interest in, in aging. But we also hope that what's what draws people is the fact that there are three professors teaching the course. So they're really getting three profs for the price of one. (laughs) Uh, I teach it along with a colleague of mine named Nancy Morrow Howell, and she's a social worker by training, and she teaches in our social work school. And our other co-instructor is Susie Stark. She's an occupational therapist, and she teaches over at the medical campus at WashU. So there are three of us in the class who are approaching this topic from different perspectives. And I think the students find that appealing, that they're going to be talking about this big topic, this big issue of global aging, but they're going to hear about it from several different people throughout the semester. The other kind of cool thing I think about the course is that there are older adults from St. Louis in the classroom every week with the students as well. So we're standing in front of the room kind of leading a discussion about a certain topic, but then we open it up for questions and conversation and the older adults who are there tell us about what it's like really. <laughs> I'm talking about what the academic research tells us about growing older. But the older adults then raise their hand and say, well, let me tell you what it's really like to retire. Or let me tell you what it's really like to have a spouse with Alzheimer's disease. Or let me tell you what it's really like to think about giving up your driver's license. And we can talk about those things as professors, but hearing it from an older adult themselves is completely different for the students. What have they said that uh, surprises even you? The students or the older adults? The older adults, yeah. First, they're surprised at how interested these 18-year-olds are in their experience. Um, So they're always remarking about how curious the students are, how genuinely interested they are in learning about them. Um, The older adults also tell us that they feel energized by being part of the class you know they feel like they're making a contribution um, by helping us teach young people about the realities of aging so we think that uh, the older adults get something out of it just as powerful as the students do and as powerful as we do because every year we're learning more from the students and from the older adults as well that's actually how i found out about you i was riding in the elevator in this building and there is an older gentleman that i mean he he must have told me about the class within (laughs) the first i don't know three or four minutes of our conversation and he talked about how it makes him feel a part of the community and i think you know if if you recognize college towns st louis isn't a college town but where wash u is Mm -hmm. it's definitely a big presence in that area university city the idea that you could stitch together the older people that are living there with the college students is a huge win because i think most of the time college kids seem scary to older adults and and uh 
I don't know that that uh, older adults particularly care for college students. You know, they're making noise and getting into problems. Yeah, it works in both directions. You know, they're um, one of the themes of our course is ageism. I don't know if you've heard that term ageism before, but it's, you know, like sexism or homophobia or racism. There is a pattern of discrimination and prejudice and bias against people based on their age. We typically think of that as people being biased against old people, but in reality, it works in both directions. And that when we talk to young people, they have stereotypes about old people and they can describe experiences where they may have witnessed ageism towards old people. But when we talk to old people, they tell us that they have stereotypes about younger people as well. So bias is, uh, you know, is open for everybody, unfortunately. So the students, as they're taking this class, what revelations are they having as they go through the semester? We are we are intentional about trying to cover a lot of ground. So it's we don't go deep, but we go broad to expose the students to lots of different issues around aging throughout the semester. So we talk about your body, obviously, and changes that you can expect with your body. We talk about your mind and how people's psychology changes and their cognition changes as they grow older. We spend some time talking about social policies, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. We spend a whole day talking about death and preparing for the end of life. Um, and I think what we hear from students at the end of the semester is that they are uh, they are intrigued by several ideas that they hadn't thought about before. Ageism is one of them and noticing all the ways in which our society sends messages about how bad it is to grow older. I think they're also surprised about the conversations we have about death. Um, we ask them to think about the aging of their parents or other older people in their life. And if they were ever in a position where they needed to make some decisions or help coordinate care for somebody, would they know what to do? Would they know what their loved one's preferences are? And they're surprised at how little they've thought about that. We also have a whole day where we talk about sexuality and sex. And that freaks people out a little bit. It wigs them out a little bit that, that, that we're going to have a conversation about sex. Um, and it freaks them out because we're talking about this forbidden topic, but we're also asking them to think about the sex lives of their parents and their grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is where, this is where those older adults in the classroom become very important because they're often willing to talk about intimacy over their lifespan and how it's changed. Um, and, and 18 year olds find that a little bit shocking to hear about. They don't like to think about their parents or their grandparents having sex, but I think it's important for them to understand that intimacy evolves over your entire life and that you're a sexual being when you're 18 and you're going to continue to be a sexual being when you're 85. It might look different. It might not look different. Um, but you shouldn't assume because it would be ageist that just because you're 85 that you don't have an interest in sex or intimacy. Let's explore that. I mean, I, I certainly know virtually nothing about it. And I even, you know, as you're describing this, I'm thinking about um, just my own self being intimate, you know, at an older age. And it's an uncomfortable thought to, to think like, oh, I could be frail. I could have trouble rolling over. I could have trouble holding myself up. I could, you know, all of the, not, not to mention all of the psychological, you know, fears that men have. 
So what are the changes that happen to older adults? You are you are one step ahead of the game because you just listed a bunch of things that are on people's Only minds. because you prompted me to think <laughs> about it, right? It's not something I thought about naturally. But this is exactly the kinds of things that most people don't consider is that if you think about arthritis, for example. Arthritis is a very common chronic illness that people develop as they grow older. It's going to affect your ability to move. It's going to affect your flexibility. It's going to affect your stamina and your strength and your endurance and so therefore it's going to have an effect on your ability to be intimate with yourself or with other people so that's an example of the kind of thing that that when you're 18 and your body is doing everything that you want it to do you don't imagine that the sexual aspect of your life is going to change in terms of what you can do in addition to maybe what you want to do. I, it strikes me. I remember people making jokes about how rampant uh, STDs got in retirement communities and mm -hmm. largely because when those people were growing up, they didn't have a large number of sexual partners. There wasn't all this talk around safe sex or how to protect yourself. And so it was like it skipped over them and now you've got to circle back. Is this a real thing? It's a real thing. It's a real thing. Yeah. The rates of HIV infections, for example, are very, very high among older adults. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense. Um, when you're past menopause, um, you don't have to worry about getting pregnant. So people may assume that they don't need to be thinking about using condoms or protecting themselves in any sort of way. And so you've kind of left the door open for STDs because people aren't necessarily thinking that they need to be worried about engaging in safer kind of sex practices. Women, they keep up this uh, a level of sexual desire as, as they get older? It's no different for men or women. There's huge individual variability. You know, people who probably the best predictor of people's interest and in activity in sex later in life is their interest in activity in sex younger when they were younger. Um, so some people will be just as interested in having a sex life when they're in their later years as they were in their younger years. And they'll want to do the same things with the same kinds of people. Other people may evolve. They may change what the kind of intimacy they want to have, what kind of how they want to be sexually active and who they want to be sexually active with. Um, so like everything else in human experience, the nature of your sexuality may change as you grow older. Uh, for some people, more so than for other people. But it's a re it's a facet of life that isn't going to go away as people get older and people would be benefited if they thought about it a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I, it strikes me because I get the sense that, you know, one of the things, <laughs> you know, when you're a young person, you're 18, you are driven by sex or at least, you know, largely a lot of what I thought about, a lot of what I wanted to talk about and, and pursue and so I think I'd always imagined like, oh, well, one of the best things about getting older is that that goes down. And as a 40-year-old with two kids, it does just because <laughs> you don't have time to think about it. Yeah. But I think like uh, you're kind of taking away something from me that I was like maybe hopeful about. Like because like, if the desire itself went down, right, then, you, then you're not pursuing it. It's not – it doesn't consume you. It can be true for some people. Um, but you might think about it in terms of, this is an overgeneralization, but when you're younger, many people will think about the frequency of sex as being the most important thing, that they want to have a lot of sex. Less attention to paid to the nature of the sexual experience, <laughs> the quality of the sexual sure. experience. 
And I think there's an overemphasis on a certain kind of sexual experience that sex means intercourse when you're 18 or when you're a younger person for a lot of people, not everybody. Um, but that's, you know, there's a lot of other, you can define sexual activity in a really, really broad way. Um, and I think as some people grow older, their view and their perspective and their desires broaden as well. And they have hopefully a more eclectic sense of what being sexually active can look like. Yeah. I think, um, intimacy as you get older like really does change right it's it's like your ability to appreciate anything what you know what you drink and what you eat and the art mm -hmm. you look at because you're it's not just that immediacy yeah so when you explore these subjects that are deep in their nature are the kids giggling are they like how how do people react to this you see some giggling some discomfort um, when we're talking about difficult topics whether it's sex or um, death for example less giggling with death um, more serious kind of but discomfort when you're talking about yeah anything to separate you from yep. the from whatever's going on exactly exactly but we also see just a lot of awe you know a lot of a lot of you know head slapping like wow i didn't i didn't even really know that or think about that we have a whole day where we talk about money for example and the students are shocked um, to learn about how much money they will probably need to save if they're ever going to retire at some point in their life so that's a kind of they have a negative reaction to that when they think about oh my gosh i'm gonna have to work so long and i'm gonna have to make so much money but on the other hand, you know, the positive is that we teach them about, and some of them have very, very uh, minimal financial knowledge, even as 18 year olds, we teach them about compound interest. Now that's a pretty basic kind of banking principle, right? But when we show them, you know, what your money can do for you, if you start saving at a young age rather than later in your life, that just blows their minds as well because they're like, um, you mean if I put this little amount of money away now when I'm in my 20s, it'll be this huge pot of money when I'm in my 80s? So from all of these topics, I think there are things that shock the students and are discouraging to them about aging. But we also are very intentional about trying to also emphasize the positives about growing older, that there are a lot of things that you could look forward to and most importantly, there are decisions that you can make at every age, even when you're 18, that will have long-term benefits to what your old age looks like in terms of lifestyle behaviors, savings for retirement, that there are things that you can be doing that you have control over that can influence the quality of your life when you make it to 80, 90, or 100. I think when we talk about retirement, one of the things that strikes me is that there's it's this very western idea in that you know you're kind of marketed to by all these institutions saying you know you put money away put money away so that that way you can retire but it's really just a slot of time in your retirement when you get to be in that kind of happy you know we're jumping off the dock into the water we're you know doing something fun that they do in the commercials because a substantial portion of that amount of wealth that you save in retirement is for you to have end of life care and and nursing homes and things like this but it's like uh sold to us as retirement is the goal it's the it's the you know when you get to walk up to the top of the mountain and you're in heaven yeah and what does that tell you about how you're supposed to be thinking about the rest of your life that you know your life you can only really start living until you stop working 
But what is, if that's the message, what does that tell you about how you're supposed to feel about your work life um, before you retire? I mean, when you think about it, why is our life divided up the way it is now? We front load it with years and years and years of school where we don't have to, our responsibility isn't really to, to work for most people full time, it's to learn, to get educated. And then that stops, you graduate, and then you're supposed to enter the second phase where you're working, working, working. And you do that for a while, and then you stop that. And then there's this nebulous thing called retirement where you're neither learning nor working. You're doing this, you have this extended vacation of some kind. Why does it have to be structured that way in these discrete buckets? I mean, why can't, I mean, we created it, you know, we decided that's how we were going to live, but why does it need to be that way? Why couldn't we have a different model where we go to school for a little bit and then maybe work for a little bit and then maybe not work for a couple of years and then maybe go back to school again and then work for a little while and then go back to school and then do nothing for a while why does it have to be set out in these three big chunks that way? And that's kind of as much of a philosophical question and a sociological question as it is a practical one, I think. Yeah, as, as I'm cycling through your argument, I, th I start thinking like, well, one of the reasons is if you put a 12 year old to work, you get in a lot of trouble for that, right? <laughs> like we, we don't, our policy doesn't allow that. But mm -hmm. You know, you think about, you know, I've had a chance to live a little bit in Latin America and in, in uh, Kenya. And uh, one of the things that you notice is they don't have these hard seasons in the same way that we that you're describing. Right. Mm -hmm. You when you become a grandmother, Nyanya, like you're doing what you did before. You're just allowed to do it at a slower pace. And mm -hmm. people kind of run around you and ask you, like, how should it get done? But there, it's all white to gray to black as opposed to yeah. hard stops. Right. Mm -hmm. I think there are, there, you could imagine many advantages to that, you know, psychological advantages, maybe even social advantages. If, if people have more opportunities and more flexibility in how they spend their time and what they do with that time. And it wouldn't create this sense of expectation and burden that your retirement has to be this certain kind of thing. Um, that, I mean, retirement is, it, as a construct, as an idea, has been changing dramatically over the last couple of decades as well. And this idea that you're supposed to work and work and work and work, and then you stop, and then you just have this leisure time until you're dead, you know, that's not satisfying to a lot of people. Nor are certain groups of people able to do that, you know, for financial reasons or health reasons. You know, that expecting this big chunk of time where you're just going to be, you know, dump, jumping off of a dock into a lake. That's <laughs> not the reality that a lot of people in our society are even going to be able to have. Yeah. I mean, you said a statistic that, you know, kind of um, makes you clench your fist because it's scary, which is that 18 percent of baby boomers have less than fifty thousand dollars in their retirement savings. I mean. $50,000, if you have a leaky roof, you know, could be could be cut in half is the principal is not going to earn enough interest, you would have to put it in such risky things to be able to even eke out an additional year of savings on that. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And people think about Social Security, sometimes wrongly, as the source of income that's going to support them in their later life. And Social Security was never intended 
to be a full replacement for somebody's income after they stopped working. It was supposed to be a supplement to people's savings. Um, but when you don't have a, a, when your society is not structured in a way that allows people to save or people aren't able to save because they have to, they're living paycheck to paycheck and they just don't have the extra cash to put into savings, then you're creating a situation where they're, they're gonna get to later life and they're gonna rely on this pot of money and social security that's not gonna be sufficient to support them. Yeah, so I watched some of your lectures the other day and I, I will say that I think you are literally the best Zoom lecturer I've ever seen. You're, <laughs> you're an excellent in person, but with Zoom, I found myself having to like stop what I was doing because I was just trying to play it and do other work. Yeah. And I would be like, wait, wait, I've got to go and watch this. So I would highly recommend go going and watch it. But one of the things that you brought up about uh, Social Security and these other programs was when they were created, the actuary said, look, half of everybody will be dead by the time they're, was it 62? Mm -hmm. And so, or, so they're at 61.8, half of the people are going to be dead. So why don't we just set the retirement age here and we know it'll pay off. Right. Mm -hmm. So many of our social policies were created for a demography that that doesn't exist anymore. You know, these were social policies that policies that were created 50, 60, 70 years ago based on what our population looked like then in terms of the age demographics and the age breakdown. Now we have a world that looks completely different and yet we haven't changed our social policies to keep up with those demographic changes. So something's going to need to change because those policies aren't working the way that they did for us decades ago. Yeah, the other part of this was not only are people living longer, but so many more of them are living longer, right? And when you show your graphs that are, you know, like look at how the baby boomers, not only were they a big generation, but they also are living 20 years longer than their family, the implications on this are so hard to grapple with because I think ageism becomes a real situation when, when you're a young person sitting there saying, look at how much money we're funneling to the older people to keep them alive, to keep them in healthcare, whatever that is. And yet that's going to be by far the larger voting group than than most younger groups so there's going to be a crazy tension here yeah, yeah. and i think that's it's un, it's unfortunate that it gets framed as a tension that it often gets framed as an us versus them um that that it has to be a zero-sum game that you know if we take care of old people we we have to lose something else um and i think i don't think that's the right way to think about it for for a couple of reasons one is that i think there are alternatives that that we could think about from a policy point of view and a financial point of view that wouldn't ne necessarily mean that we have to sacrifice something for a younger generation in order to support the older generation. I think the second more important thing is that old age, be, an old, being an older person is the thing that we all, we all aspire to. We all want to be old someday. I mean, we, you know what I mean, right? We well, I mean, this old. goes, I, so when people have a birthday I, and they like complain about getting older, I'm always like, well, it beats the alternative, right? right? Exactly. And that is, it's either death or you get old. Those right. are you, the only two options you have. Exactly. And so if we all want to get old rather than die, um, we create this contradiction in people's heads. If we construct a society in which people feel 
negative about older adults and aging. Because if you're 20 or 30 or 40, and the idea you have about growing older is mostly about decline, disability, dependence, oh, it's going to be terrible, then you've just set yourself a trap because one day you are going to be there. So if your expectation is for only negative, terrible things in old age, then eventually you're going to be part of that group that you are biased against when you're younger. This is the only human characteristic that we will all grow into. I am not going to become a different race or ethnicity as I grow older. I'm not going to become, for me, a different gender as I grow older. So I'm not going to experience something different in those kinds of identities or characteristics. But I will be an old person someday, knock on wood. I hope to be an old person someday. So if I have negative ideas about what it's like to be an old person now, what's what's that going to mean for me when I do become an old person if I've spent my whole life worrying about and yeah, dreading it. yeah exactly I, I, when I was a kid so you know I went to this preschool that was connected with uh, a you know um, a nursing home and that had good benefits to it because I didn't have a grandmother that was growing older you know so I got to see older people but it was also terrifying right you're a little kid you're you know you're brought in to sing nursery rhymes or christmas carols or something to the older people mm -hmm. and i vividly remember the people that are so infirmed that all they're doing is making you know low bellowing noises or mm -hmm. you know they're they're just kind of staring off in a corner and that to me was what growing older was it wasn't until i got out into the world that i saw something different how should you prepare little kids to see what old age is if you don't have grandparents around yeah that's I, that's a fascinating experience what do you what do you think the people were thinking who built that who wanted you to spend time with these old people i think that it was the nature of a small town you know a little nursery school and a retirement and i think that you know for many of the kids that attended that school particularly when it started they were going to see their grandparents. Their grandparents. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was some sort of like thought about like, hey, we're connecting mm -hmm. older to younger. Um, it just that as it played out in my mind and, the, you know, I can remember the parakeets we would go in there. They would always have these little birds around. I always thought that was neat. But it, it was I don't think until I moved to Africa that I ever spent time with older people, maybe over the age of 70 ever. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Did, do you remember anybody in that school experience ever talking with you about the people you were visiting and wh who they were and what kind of experiences you were having? Or were they, you, they just kind of threw you in there and said, <laughs> okay, like have fun, be supportive? I think that my memories just aren't that clear about it. You know, we clearly did it multiple times. And so it was carols and things. Mm -hmm. And I just remember hitting a point where I would like dread it. It'd be like, uh oh, yeah, we're going over there mm -hmm. with those scary, smelly, people. with those scary, smelly people. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And I think that my sense about a nursing home, I have about as much desire to go to one as I have to go to a prison. That's so bad. <laughs> this is an example of an, uh, a maybe well-intended intergenerational program trying to bring two generations together but without the right kind of context and explanation and support 
Um, so it's just going to reinforce a lot of bad stereotypes, unfortunately. I'm it's sorry. entirely possible that there are people that ran Noah's Ark that'll watch this episode. So <laughs> my experience at Noah's Ark daycare was very good. I agree with you. Like, I think that for my own daughters, I want them to have experience of older people that I had later. So my mentor is 103 years old. I met him when he was in his 90s and he was one of the sharpest people I'd ever met. So getting old like Pete would be the, you know, the great gift of a lifetime. In fact, I think everyone wants to be like Pete because he has what they call Pete's orphans, right? These are young people that maybe didn't have an older person. He takes them into their life. He taught me how to, you know, eat properly and to have good manners and to do all the kinds of things that I wasn't going to pick up from my parents. And so, you know, how do you get to the place of being like Pete? Right. You have re you have latched onto, I think, such an important idea um, that we need to foster opportunities for people across generations to interact with each other. And it shouldn't be focused just on taking preschoolers to nursing homes because those are that's fine. But those are very, very narrow, homogeneous groups that you're introducing to each other. So what you missed was having the opportunity to see the diversity of older adults and the many different ways that people do grow older. You saw one kind of old experience. You saw people who were more dependent and maybe even had some dementia or cognitive problems. But you didn't get to see meet people like Pete or other people who were experiencing aging in a different way. The other thing that I think is revealing about the, your story is that why didn't you have opportunities to meet people in their 60s or 40s or 30s. You know, we, we when we talk about intergenerational activities or programs, we tend to think about very young people brought together with very old people. But our society is multi-generational. And really, the more beneficial thing, I think, would be to make sure that people are exposed to people across the entire lifespan. Preschoolers should be talking to 40-year-olds, to 30 to 60-year-olds. That's the nature of our society. But we have, your example is a great one of how we put people into these boxes, these generational boxes, but we don't really encourage ways for them to interact. You interacted with your parents, of course, and maybe other, and your school teachers. But when was the last time, at your age now, you said you were in your 40s? Do you have any friends who are in their 20s? Well, yeah, my executive producer over there. Like, you, this is a good point. That um, I think that most 40-year-olds don't have 20-year-old friends or 18 or, you know, the, these, this age group, I have found there is tremendous value in trying to get yourself around young people because, um, things that used to be intuitive to me, how to run a computer program, how to, how, you know, what's going on, the things that come natural to them just by virtue of the plasticity of their brain has been very, very valuable, but almost nobody does nobody that. Nobody does it. Well, there aren't a lot of opportunities to do it in our society. Like think about how hard it's really hard to meet new friends, even in your same age group, how would you even go about meeting a friend who was in their 20s? Or how would you even go about meeting a person who were in their 60s or their 70s? Our society just doesn't create opportunities for that as much as it 
as it could. Yeah, and probably in large part because of the thing you were saying before about, uh, you know, we have these very defined blocks. Mm -hmm. College kids don't hang out with, you know, people in their middle ages. And and the fact, I and you mentioned this in your lecture, uh, about the age that people are having children does these weird things to our culture, right? So if I didn't have children until I'm 30, then if I have kids and I'm hanging out with a 20-year-old, our lives are so completely different, mm -hmm. not just because I have kids, but I'm also 10 years older than this person. You know, your financial positions are different. Your What you're interested in is different, what your priorities are. And so even when you do bring those things together, they're very disjointed. Right, exactly. This is another one of the points that we make to the students in our class is that you're going to make some choices when you're younger about you know, when to find a spouse or a partner, if you're going to find a spouse or partner, when you're going to create your own family, if you're going to create create your own family, um, what kind of work you're going to start and how long you're going to stay in it. Those decisions that you make when you're in your 20s, they have repercussions far beyond your 20s. And people don't really think about that, what, what the long-term consequences of those choices are. I had a guest named uh, Chad Fleck on my podcast, and I thought I was having him on because he was doing some farming and kind of some homestead stuff. And uh, about partway through the interview, I realized, no, actually, the value of this is that this guy got married when he was 19. Mm -hmm. He has kids already. He, he has grandparents. They have parents. His grandparents are likely going to be great-grandparents. Mm -hmm. And I realized... I don't actually know anyone that has children that are going to have great grandparents. And that would have been much more common before, not because people age longer, but because they had children so much exactly. earlier. Exactly right. And I think you're going to see that, see more of that again, that you're going to have multi, multi, multi-generational families that we experienced in the United States 100 years ago. And now they're going to come back, but for exactly a different reason, the one that you pointed out. Part of your work is teaching, but another part of your work, you do counseling mm -hmm. where you work with people that are saying, hey, mom and dad are getting older. How am I going to handle this? How does somebody find you and what, what do they find when they're looking for you? It's usually word of mouth. You know, people just hear about the work that I do in my clinical practice and say that, you know, they talked with me or knew about me and had a conversation with me and people just call when they when they're experiencing some sort of transition in their life. I will say that it's as likely to be the middle aged people who contact me um, as their parents, because sometimes it's the parents who are understanding that they're entering a new phase of life and that there are some challenges that they hadn't anticipated before and they want to be more prepared and they want to talk about how do they have those conversations with their middle-aged kids? You know, parents who's older parents who say, I want to make sure that I get my will in order, my advanced directive in place. And I want to sit down with my kids and tell them about what's important to me so that if I'm ever in a medical situation where I can't express my own wishes, I want them to know what I want because they're the ones who are going to probably make decisions for me. And I've tried to talk to my kids about that and they shut it down. They just don't want to hear me talking about myself. Getting oh, the kids shut the it kids down. the kids shut it down. It works both ways because sometimes it's the parents who shut it down. But it's in my experience, it's just as likely that it'll be the middle-aged generation who shuts down the conversation too. So I travel around. I speak with a lot of ag audiences. I'm invited to talk about succession and a lot of that to be 
you know, how do you negotiate that we're going to hand something down, how much of it needs to remain the same and how much can can change. Mm -hmm. When I'm there, most of the time, it's younger people saying, I can't get dad or mom to turn the reins over to me or I can't mm -hmm. get them to have this conversation because they think I'm trying to kill them. Then, <laughs> So you, to, what you're saying is surprising to me that there are older adults that are saying, no, it's it's the other way around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No hard and fast rule. I think, you know, it's another one of those situations where it really just depends on the family. And, you know, families are very different from each other uh, in terms of the the history, the power dynamics, how people talk about things, what's an okay thing to talk about, what's a not okay thing to talk about. Families are super different from each other about all of those rules. Um, so I think it can work in either direction for people. What advice can you give someone about how to get their kids to be willing to think about death? Yeah, so we have a couple, well, first of all, we try to reinforce the idea that the conversations are important. We don't want to minimize how difficult they're going to be for some people because these are hard, important things to talk about. I mean, money is a difficult, touchy subject for a lot of people, um, just like sex is for, yeah. for younger people. Um, so first of all, we kind of want to acknowledge for folks that, yeah, these are difficult conversations, but it's a good thing for you to be having them now because that it's going to be much more challenging if you have to have these decisions in an emergency or in a crisis where you have to make decisions really quickly and everybody's super emotional. Um, so first of all, we tell people, great, it's so good that you're thinking about having these conversations now. Now, how do you get them started? Um, and we've got you know tips for people about how to introduce the topic. How do you raise the issue? How do you frame it in a way that communicates to the person, whether they're an older parent or a middle-aged person, that you're bringing this up because you care about them and you care about your relationship with them, and you're trying to be thoughtful about them by having the conversation early so that it's not going to be more challenging if you have the conversation, if you wait and have the conversation later. So we try to help them see the benefits of having these kinds of conversations sooner rather than later. And then we give them some practical tips about how to do it. Like you don't want to, for example, you don't want to have like a sit down with everybody in the family on Thanksgiving for five <laughs> hours where you think you're going to hash out every last thing. That's just not a good strategy. So we give them some practical tips about how to bite off little pieces of this a little bit at a time. So what are like, where, where are the first pieces to bite off? That's a question that we might ask the family as well Is like, is there, is there one particular topic where you're feeling some urgency right now? Maybe it's related to driving safety for, for instance, or maybe it's related to uh, inheritance or property, or maybe it's related to healthcare decisions. You know, they they had a friend who went into the hospital and had a bad experience with some medical care that they that was that didn't work out well, and that scared them and thought, oh, maybe I should talk to my kids about this because I wouldn't want that same thing to happen to me. So, different people come to this to want to have this conversation for different reasons, and that's usually the place to start. Is you know what it, what has happened recently to you or in your family that got you thinking about having this conversation when I mean, that's where we should start oh that's fascinating right i you know i think about i'm very capable of having conversations with just about anyone except for my parents right when it, when it comes to your parents all of a sudden saying something 
has a meaning that could last forever. Like yeah. the, the, I can't take that back. Or if they interpret this the wrong way, the implications could be, you know, life altering or mm -hmm. in, in some way. Right. This must be the stress that other people feel. Yes. Mm -hmm. That, and I think that they understand that these conversations come with a lot of backstory. There's a lot of history. Um, and, and people have been in their family for decades and decades and decades, and that's a long time for patterns to emerge, um, roles to... Yeah, who's uh, the responsible yeah, child, who's exactly, the not responsible exactly. child. And all that stuff plays out in these conversations. So yeah, they can feel a little bit like a time bomb for folks because of all of those possibilities. When you think about aging for yourself, are you frightened of it? Not frightened. Um, I have, to be honest, um, mixed feelings about it. And I think my work in this area has, has helped me to have mixed feelings. And I think that's a good thing to have mixed feelings. Um, you know, our, to go back to our course for a minute, when we first started teaching the course, our goal was to make 18 year olds excited about growing older. Um, and that really didn't happen. And we were a little bit naive <laughs> to think that that was going to happen. Um, now we have a more realistic and measured goal, which is to help 18 year olds understand that aging is going to bring some challenges. Uh, but it can also bring some joys and there are things that you can do to prepare for it. And if you don't like what aging looks like right now, you can change it. You know, it can be up, it can be up to you and your generation to make aging different. And so if, if that's what I want my students to believe, I need to believe that too. And I think I do, I think I understand that there, that there are going to be some inevitable challenges about growing old. You're not going to have the same body that you had when you're 90 that you had when you're 20. And you're going to need to accept the reality of that and uh, still appreciate all the things your body can do, but maybe try to be more flexible about what you're asking of that body and accommodate the changes in your body. And that's true of every facet of yourself as you're growing older. So I'm not afraid of growing older. I think I hope I'm more knowledgeable about what might be ahead and have started to plan for that and approach every birthday with the open mind, um, a more open-minded attitude about the things that are changing and, and being willing to shift how I think about life and myself in life and my relationships and uh, my living situation, everything about my life, just trying to be more flexible in the face of some very real challenges that that people are going to experience as they grow older. That's just the reality of it. What changes over the last 10 years have you made as a result of learning what you learned? I'm trying to be friend, have friends of all different ages. That's one thing that I've tried to work on, not very successfully because it's hard. I'm still trying to figure out how to make that happen. But I've talked to enough older adults who had very narrow social networks um, where they got to be 85, 90, and their friends are all dying. And so they, what they have is this shrinking pool of friends who are all the same age, and the same thing is going to start happening to all of them. They didn't have friends in their 60s. They didn't have friends in their 40s. And so I want to make sure, I, to the extent that I can, that as I grow older, I'm not relying on a cohort, a, a social network, that's all in the exact same place in the lifespan that I am. 
So that's one thing that I've changed. It strikes me because that's precisely what Pete did. He figured mm -hmm. out everyone in his life, everyone he knew is dead. Mm -hmm. You know, s starting with his wife all the way up to all of his other friends, all yeah. of the friends that he lived in the apartment building with, everybody. Yeah. But somehow he managed to keep a lifeline to younger people. And then those young people brought more young people, brought more young people. But if he hadn't set that up 30, 40 years ahead of time, he wouldn't have had it when exactly. he turned 100. Yeah, he's this is a smart guy, this Pete. Oh, brilliant. Bri yeah. Absolutely, completely one of a kind, amazing, brilliant person. Mm -hmm. He should write a book. <laughs> oh, we push him. He's been on the podcast a couple times, Good. and now he's like done with it. He's he's yeah. like, ah, I've, I've I've said everything I need to say. I've told all my stories. Mm. So. Yeah, he sounds like he's approaching things the right way. Other changes you made? I'm trying to be more uh, adaptable about how I take care of my body. Um, so I used to be a runner, not so good, you know, if you do that for a long time. So um, now I uh, do other forms of exercise um, that are more. Um, they're less stressful for my body. Um, so I'm making change. I'm, I'm, I think I'm trying to be realistic about what my body can do as I grow older and take care of it and still stay active in a way that feels meaningful and fun to me, but do it in a way that respects the limits of my body. I, so when we had our, our first daughter, we took them over to a family friend's house and, and the couple is maybe in their maybe mid sixties. And I noticed that the dad, the, that he could get up and down off the ground so easily it was like hmm. just getting up and down and picking up the baby and i came home and told my wife about this you know we were talking about it and she was like yeah the, you know it's one of those transitions she's a physical therapist where she says you know you go from realizing that the muscles that you're trying to put on or the these people trying to take testosterone and things to keep their bodies as big as they can ultimately becomes an impedance and the way that you stay younger longer is like flexibility is the ability to get up and down and move around but nobody tells you this right it is not a part of popular culture to right. say you know oh the, the thing you really want when you're in your 40s is the ability to reach down and touch your toes and get out of bed without hurting yourself exactly i mean like i'm already worried about like who, who's gonna cut my toenails you know they seem they're starting to seem farther and farther away from me every year but you're right it's that flexibility the stretching the strength the balance that's the stuff that's going to be more important for you. One of the things that I've been concerned about, because a, a long time ago, I heard that, you know, your creativity goes away as you age. In fact, I have some friends that are doing really high end mathematics and they basically burned everything down in their 20s because they said after I'm 20, hmm. the odds are that I'll get some new idea is virtually zero. Is that true? It's complicated. Um First of all, it's complicated because creativity is kind of a mushy concept to begin with, right? You know, is it we typically think of creativity as, you know, our artists, the painters, the authors, the musicians. Um, and that's one way of thinking about creativity. But is it any less, less creative for you to go home today and open up your refrigerator and figure out, hmm, I need to make dinner out of what's in there. Let's see if I can throw something together. Is that necessarily being creative you know and if you can do that when you're 85 does that mean you're still creative you fascinating know? so i think that one of the complications around your question is how what we're talking about you know or what are, what exactly is the skill or the competency 
that we're worried about losing as we grow older. Because the reality is that your brain, like any other organ in your body, is going to change as you grow older. Just like your liver is not going to be the same liver and your lungs aren't going to be the same lungs and your skin isn't going to be the same skin. So as your brain is changing, as you grow older, it's we know that it's going to be less able to do certain things with the same speed and efficiency as it did when you were in your 20s. And that's a reality. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're destined to be infirm, cognitively impaired individual as you enter your later life. Um, number one, you can do things to take good care of your brain, just like you do things to take care of your body. And it's important to start taking the care of your brain when you're in your 20s. Um, what does it mean to take care of your brain? I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. You need to be eating well, getting plenty of rest, exercising, you know, the, the basics that we've known are important for a long time. What's good for your heart is good for your brain. So if you take care of your heart, you'll be doing your brain a favor as well. Um, so nothing magical there. It's the public health people have told us all those things for decades. I mean, you, you're not going to tell anybody on the street that they should be exercising more, and that's going to be a surprise to them. The challenge is getting people to do it, you know, to eat better, to sleep well, to get plenty of exercise, and to stay socially connected and purposefully engaged. Um, so if you're taking care of your brain, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Um, but there are also ways that you can, that we know that older adults accommodate changes in their brain as they grow older and their cognition as they grow older. So some people, you know, for example, will, will say to me, um, you know, I, I don't know what's going on. I, I'm afraid I'm getting Alzheimer's disease. I, I misplaced my cell phone or I walk into a room and I can't remember exactly what I was looking for, or I meet somebody new and I can't remember their name. And I'm like, yeah, that happens to everybody as they grow older. And it even happens to people when they're younger too. It doesn't necessarily mean that your brain is- They just don't attribute it to getting older. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one of those stereotypes that people have that, you know, you are destined to have problems with your memory and your thinking as you grow older. And for some people that does happen. It is normal to experience some mild changes in your memory and your thinking as you grow older because your brain's different than the brain you had when you were younger. But that doesn't necessarily happen to everybody. It happens really pretty late in life for most people. And it isn't necessarily a sign that people have a kind of dementia like Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a disease. It's not a normal part of aging. And not everybody who reaches old age will develop Alzheimer's disease. We think that about maybe around a third of the people who are at age 85 may have some kind of dementia like Alzheimer's disease. But the other, the flip side of that statistic is that two thirds of the people at 85 don't have Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's is a disease like arthritis, like cardiovascular disease. It is not a normal part of aging. Do you think Alzheimer's will be cured someday? We all hope. Um, you know, we've been working on that, or I haven't been working on that. There are other people a lot smarter than me who have been working on that for a long time. Um, are we closer? Mm, depends who you ask. I mean, we haven't had 
uh, treatment breakthrough in decades. I mean, there was a new medication that was just approved last year by the FDA, but that got scaled back. Now it's only available under very limited circumstances for a very narrow group of people. It's not even clear whether it's beneficial or how beneficial it is. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions around Alzheimer's disease at this point. We're making gradual steps in how we understand it, um, but no magic bullet at this point. It's an interesting part of life because if you've ever watched somebody with Alzheimer's, you you notice like they don't really know what's going on. Like in the beginning they do, but once they've hit a certain point, it's almost like going back to being a child all the way to an infant. And And for the people on the outside of it, it seems to me horrifying, right? This is not just going to prison. It's going to prison where you lose all of your faculties and you're not safe for yourself. But for the person inside of it, it doesn't seem, well, I mean, I'm sure it can seem scary, but it, they, they seem to be drifting off in a way. Yes, for some people. Um, you know, it's, this is a terrible disease and it's terrible for the people who are experiencing it and the people around them for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned. You know, I think for, for some people, the, the, the very beginning phases can be terrifying because you once you have a diagnosis, you know that this is a Alzheimer's, in the case of Alzheimer's disease, it's a progressive form of dementia. So it, it will get worse. And we know that. We don't know how quickly it will get worse for any one person or what they will start to lose in what sequence. That's hard to predict for any individual, but we know a little bit about what's going to be coming down the road. And the specter of that can be extremely dim d discouraging for people and depressing for people. How does somebody get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's? Our diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is a provisional diagnosis. So it's a tentative diagnosis because the only way we can diagnose it definitively now is with a biopsy by looking at brain tissue under a microscope. That's the only way for to know for sure that a person had Alzheimer's disease. So now we're, we use a variety of biomarkers, so things that we can see in the brain and the body that tell us something about the accumulation of substances in the brain and the body that are indicators of Alzheimer's disease. And we can combine that with other clinical tests of people's memory, cognition, other functions that, and we can kind of predict that with about 95% accuracy right now. And there's several tests that are under development right now that might increase the accuracy of that. So they typically people will go to an evaluation center where they're, they'll have these biomarkers evaluated, uh, have an interview with a physician who asks questions about changes they've been experiencing, often involves bringing a family member in or somebody who knows that person well to ask them about changes that they've noticed as well. Maybe sometimes some paper and pencil testing to help understand where the person's cognitive strengths and weaknesses are at the moment. And that after that, all that information is gathered and synthesized, then the physicians can usually offer a diagnosis. And again, we think that we can do that with about 95% accuracy. When somebody is having an older parent and the parent, you know, in your lecture, you had talked about one of the highest priorities people have is to stay in their home. What keeps somebody from being able to stay in their home? Often it's safety issues. Uh, it's an ability to, to navigate around your home in a way that allows you to 
take care of yourself in the way that we all have to take care of ourselves every day. It's uh, the ability to continue to do uh, dressing, bathing, grooming. Uh, those are pretty basic things that people don't usually lose the ability to do until later. But it's also being able to you know, prepare a meal, get your groceries, pay your bills, stay in touch with other people. And when individuals start to have difficulties doing those things, whether because of a cognitive reason or a physical reason, that can often send out some red flags about whether the person is safe to stay in their home. We we want people to be able to stay in their homes as long as they they can, if that's what they wish. And there are many, many more programs that are emerging to help people do that because we know that it's cheaper and often more satisfying people to stay for people to stay in their homes rather than moving into a residence. Oh, I guess I had thought about it as being the opposite, yeah. but I guess you now interesting. Say more about that. So, uh, well, first of all, the, the most important thing is that when people want to stay in their home, that's a place where they would rather be. And we should make that possible for people when we can. Um, but if you think about the transition from home to an assisted living facility, for example, or a nursing home, those are communities where there are a lot of services that are brought together to help support the person to be able to do the thing that they couldn't do on their own in their own home. So those places are great because they bring all of those services together for individuals. Well, when you bring all those services together, there's a cost associated with that. And so if you're living there and not using it, you're amortizing all of the mm -hmm. costs. Mm -hmm. But if you're staying in your own home, you know the, the biggest expense is that property. It's easy enough. Well, I shouldn't say it's easy enough. Ideally, you would we would have a society that en enables it to be easy for you to bring in a housekeeper, somebody to help you with grocery shopping, somebody to do some laundry and housekeeping for you, maybe even somebody to help you use the bathroom or take a shower. Um, that's much less expensive than having these communities where all of those services are brought together. Yeah, one of the ladies in my neighborhood has an in-home care thing, and then her sister got old at the same time she did. So after the husband died, the sister moved in and then they shared mm -hmm. in-home care. And it, it was a brilliant idea. Then when one of the daughters would come, they'd take care of both of them. It was, But I had always thought about staying in your home as being a luxury. It ha actually hadn't crossed my mind that moving into a facility would be more expensive. Uh, for, um, almost always more expensive. Not always, you know, because it depends on how much help you need brought into your home to be able to stay healthy and stay safe there. You mentioned a statistic and you were bringing up like why aging changed so much in the United States in one of your lectures. Clearly, I loved your lectures. They really stuck with me. But they one of the things that you brought up was on average, people are going to live seven years without a driver's license in the U.S. And you think about how your life would be if you are not allowed to go get into that car because our entire worlds are situated around that. This is only going to get larger. Oh, yeah. Although, I mean, don't be pessimistic. You don't have to be entirely pessimistic about it because regardless of how you feel about driverless cars, autonomous vehicles, you know, that is the kind of technology that could be a real game changer for older adults who can't drive themselves any longer. If we are able to have this technology that allows people to get around, particularly in communities that aren't well serviced by public transportation or don't have other transportation services for older adults. I mean, that's one of the things that I like about 
um, some of the ride sharing companies that are out there now is that I know a lot of older adults who are using them to get around town because they may be driving themselves, but maybe they'll just go to a few places during the day that, where they feel safe with their driving. But if they want to go to the symphony at night or they want to go visit some friends who live further away, then they'll pick up the phone and call a ride share. And then they don't have to worry about feeling nervous about being on the road at, you know, nine o'clock at night when maybe their vision isn't as good as it used to be. So I think there are some services and programs and technologies on the horizon that might help us deal with that transportation issue. But here again, we created a, a society here in the U.S. that isn't well serviced uh, in terms of trans dealing with transportation challenges that people have. I mean, if you live in a rural area or a suburban area even, often your options are pretty limited in terms of alternative transportation. So you're right. If you have to give up your car, you're in big trouble. Earlier, you had talked about you're going to make choices when you're in your 20s that's going to impact you when you're in your 60s, 80s, you know, beyond. One of the thoughts that you brought up during your lecture was um, step parents, right? If you have children, presumably you build a good relationship with them. Oftentimes they might be willing to step in and take care of you. But if you married in later and those children aren't yours, that's going to be a different existence. Talk about that. That was surprising, but seemed very real mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Yeah, I think your example is of one kind of family where there's an original family, but that family dissolves and maybe gets reconstituted in another structure. And that's one example of the kind of family that's going to need to rethink its expectations and rules about who's responsible for doing what kinds of things. What are your obligations as a child to a step parent that maybe you haven't known for very long um, in terms of practical support or financial support or emotional support? And those kinds of rules and expectations are being rewritten all the time now because families in the United States just look a lot different than they did 50, 60 years ago, um, we've got single parent families, you have families with no children, you have families that were reformed after dissolving, you have maybe multi, multi, multi generational families that have all these complications in them. So it was a lot more straightforward when families had two parents, two kids, and maybe some grandparents, you know, the rules were pretty straightforward then. But now you've got all these different variations in families that are making things more complicated. Um, so I, people are now renegotiating or having to have a conversations about all of those things that we didn't have to have conversations before when the rules were more clear. It's only going to get more complicated in the years ahead because family structures are going to continue to evolve and continue to look really different. Do you think the United States is a good place to grow old? Ooh, that's a really good question. It depends where you are, I think, in the United States. And it depends what steps you have taken to prepare yourself. Um, I don't think any place is going, you shouldn't rely on any one place to solve all your problems for you as you grow older. But there are certainly some places that have more resources and opportunities that will help you live a certain kind of old age that you might have in mind for yourself. Um, here in St. Louis, we have 
what's called a naturally occurring retirement community. The acronym is a NORC. And there are NORCs that have sprung up spontaneously all over the United States. And they are communities or neighborhoods that have gradually accumulated a large percentage of older adults. And the NORC here in St. Louis is out in Crevecore, um, um, off, well, out in Crevecore. And it's a neighborhood where over time, more and more old people moved when they saw that there were more and more services catering to old people in that neighborhood and where people aged in their own homes. They found ways to stay in their homes longer. And so what's grown sprung up is this neighborhood of a large proportion of old people. And services have moved in to support those old people, healthcare services, but also businesses. And in fact, there is a, you can buy a membership to the NORC now that gets you discounts at restaurants, <laughs> that offers community uh, activities, social activities. And so it's brought together this set of supports that help those older people live successfully and independently in that neighborhood. Now it looks really different in New York City. Here we have a suburban NORC, but in New York City, there are NORCs in apartment buildings. They're vertical NORCs <laughs> where the same thing happened. People moved into these apartment buildings when they were younger and they've just stayed there for decades. And eventually the apartment building is almost all old people. And so businesses come into that NORC to be able to support the old people to stay there. Yeah. One of the very first clients I ever had uh, when I started working for myself was an adult daycare. And this was when I even, when the person approached me, I actually thought it was a joke because I didn't realize this is a real thing, a real thing. where you might have one uh, older adult that is getting to the point where they can't take care of themselves and you can't leave them for the day. And you have the other adult that still has a vibrant, active life. It just had never dawned on me yep. that you could have a service like this. Mm -hmm, exactly right. Yeah. And those kinds of services are going to be more and more important, I think, as the population ages and you're going to see more options. This is one of the exciting things about working in the aging field right now is that there's a great entrepreneurial spirit, you know, for people who are seeing a need and opening things like adult daycares or other kinds of residential options for older adults or services to help them live independently longer in their own homes, uh, products um, and other kinds of services that are you know, just coming on the market as people now have realized, wow, there's a big there's a big marketplace out there. So there's a business opportunity, but there's also a kind of social imperative that if we want if we want to take care of these people, we need to structure our society in a different way than we have before. So if you think about aging, you know, the other thing that goes along with it is death. What do you think happens when you die? Personally, I think that this is it. That after I'm gone, I'm gone. I don't think my anything is going to happen to my body. And I don't think my spirit, whatever my spirit is, is going to take another form. But that's a very personal belief. And I've talked to other people, many other people who have very, very different beliefs about what will happen to them after they die. None of us can know with certainty who's right. Does how somebody thinks about what will happen when they die change how they age? It can. It can. For some people, certain kinds of beliefs about what will happen to them may may motivate them to live a certain kind of life up until the point that they die. You know, if they 
if they f believe in something like karma, for example, they may devote themselves to good acts in order to make it more likely that their next life will look a certain way. Um, but I've also seen people who have beliefs about what will happen to them that are more scary, more frightening, more negative, um, that can be really frightening for them as they approach their own end of life. If, for example, they imagine that what's waiting for them on the other side is not particularly pleasant, then of course they want to delay dying as long as possible if they imagine that what's waiting for them is eternal damnation or something that's equally scary to them. So I think people's beliefs about what will happen to them after they die can influence their experience of life and their experience at the very end of life too. I'm sure you get asked by students a lot the, the question, you know, uh, what do you know about what older people regret? And I, so I do these legacy interviews. Mm -hmm. And um, when I first started, I thought asking about regrets would provide some insight. When you ask people that, they really think back about some change or some thing. What I've ultimately discovered is the best question to ask, and be interested to hear your answer on this and what, what kind of you, where it takes you, but um, is, the, is the question, what was the most difficult lesson to learn that was the most valuable to know, mm -hmm. right? Which is close to regret, mm -hmm. but it's not the same thing because that that's like, hey, if you learn a lesson, it's hey, I, it just took me a while to get there. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you do you have an answer? Does one come to mind so far in your life? What was the was the most difficult lesson to learn that was the most valuable to know? I can think of one, but I can't say that I have really put the lesson into practice as much as I wish that I had. I think I'm aware of the lesson and I know it's important. Have I actually done anything about it? I think so, but I'm still working on it. And it's a it's a lesson about being um, less afraid or less concerned about what other people might think about me or what I'm doing. Um, and I think that when I look back on my life, there were moments when I should have just done it. You know, I should have just gone there or I should have just talked to that person or I should have taken that risk or done that thing. Um, but something held me back. And the lesson that I'm trying to learn is is to not be held back, you know, because you're because at least in my belief, I'm only going to live once and it's I'm not going to get back tomorrow back. So why not make today and the next day as rich and as fulfilling as possible. And that means I may need to take some risks and do some things that will feel uncomfortable. But when I look back on those things, it's probably not going to be a big deal. And in fact, it may actually make my life better in the long run. I find that actually to be a very common uh, lesson that was really difficult for people. And and uh, it's striking for me because to a fault, I don't have that, right? Mm -hmm. to, to the extent that I really don't care what other people think to the position that it helps. But I've noticed that um, people when they hit, I don't know how old you are, but when they hit about 65, that's when that lesson clicks in and they bring that up mm -hmm. a lot, right? Yeah. That there were so many things in their life that they knew was the right thing to do or they wanted to do this thing, but they were very worried. And then when you probe it, you often find um, they, they weren't trying to avoid any one person's like uh, mm -hmm. thoughts about them. Yeah. It was kind of like, what will people, people think and it seems real yeah but when they then reflect on it it, it isn't yeah 
Do you find that people have regrets in their older years? Do they talk about regrets? No more so than younger people, I don't think. Really? I don't think so. Fascinating. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, maybe you've got more years and more experiences to regret, <laughs> you know? So maybe just like the pot of yeah. possible regrets is bigger by the time you get to be 75. Um, and you have maybe more time, you've had more time to reflect on your life and it's in a different perspective than when you're 25. Um, but I, I mean, I spent a lot of time with college students and they can tell me a lot of regrets that they have in their life, even though they've only lived 25 years or, yeah. so, or less too. Yeah, I would. I probably day to day had more regrets as a young person than I do as an older person. And the older person is just because I'm not as impulsive as as I yeah. once was. So right, right, you, right. you lower the number of regrets you have if impulsivity isn't the thing driving right. you. Or make maybe you make different decisions uh, that you have less to less to regret because of the decisions that you make differently as you grow older. So this concept that we're doing this series on memento mori. Remember, you will die. What does that strike to you? Is this something that plays in your head very often? Um, without sounding too morbid, I'd say like constantly, <laughs> every, really every day. Um, this is you know one of one of the areas that I've been interested in in for a long time, and we're doing some work here in St. Louis to that's focused on end of life and the value of people reflecting on their mortality and you know what what good that can bring to people to do that, to be aware that your days are limited um, and how to take that as energizing rather than, you know, than enervating that this is an idea that can propel your life forward rather than paralyze you. So yes, I think about it all the time because I do believe that when people are willing to engage with the idea of their mortality, that it can have some psychological and practical benefits to people. How does somebody engage with their mortality? Slow down. You know, I think that's the first step because if you think about your calendar, you think about your day, you know, do you have time today to pause and reflect? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, but thinking about the end of your life and what your life has meant, it deserves some respect, you know, that kind of reflection. But we have a hard time building that into our day to day life because we're busy and we've got a lot of responsibilities. So the first step is being intentional about the process, you know, committing to time, whether it's to read or to talk with other people or to take a walk with the goal of thinking about life and thinking about death. Um, People need to make that happen, and that needs to be an active process because it's not just going to happen naturally unless you get thrown into a situation where you're f confronted with death face to face. And that will happen to everybody eventually, but why not do it on your own time and do it on your own terms? It's likely to be much less scary and much more beneficial. I remember a time when a friend uh, and I were talking about meditation. I had just started doing it. This was several years ago. And he said, well, have you ever done a death meditation? And I was like, why in the world would I want to do that? That sounds like, you know, going to, you know, some awful place in your meditation. And then, you know, ideas like that tend to seep into your mind, right? And you then you do start thinking about it and then you, you prepare. And it, it was an interesting exercise for me because... 
I realized I was avoiding being, af- I, I wasn't afraid of death, but only because I was avoiding thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And then once you have the, I'm thinking about it, then you're like, okay, well now I've accepted that I will die. So now what? And so your concept about it propelling you forward really strikes me because that it really did. All of a sudden, the things that you're, you know, the people you're afraid of upsetting or the tree that you might wait to plant, all of a sudden you have a, an impetus to it that isn't just your to-do list. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's an awareness that can be beneficial for people regardless of their age. Um, because you know, we tend to think of that most people who die are old, and that's true from a statistical point of view, but you can die at any age. Um, so why wouldn't it be equally important for an 18-year-old to contemplate their mortality as an 85-year-old? And how do your students react to the the day of, of death in your school? Um, mixed. You know, some people are a little bit caught off guard by it and a little bit frightened by it because they haven't been shown that you can actually talk about it and think about it without it overwhelming you or getting really depressing or really sad and that there might actually be something good about it. Um, so we approach it in a very gentle way to encourage people to contemplate this idea in a way that we're asking them to contemplate lots of different ideas. We don't make a big thing about it. It's like thinking about other parts of your life as well. Um, and we hope that it, there's a little bit of that process that is destigmatizing and maybe a little desensitizing to people that, that, they can, that they have an experience where they think about death, think about their mortality in a way that doesn't overwhelm them or swamp them or make them feel really, really sad and depressed. And having come from that experience, they can say, oh, this is something that I can talk about. And it's kind of interesting. And maybe there's something valuable in continuing to think about it at different parts of my life. Well, Dr. Brian Carpenter, this has been an amazing conversation. I'm so glad to have met a guy on the elevator that pointed me in your direction. (laughs) And uh, if people wanted to um, learn about your work here in St. Louis. Where would they go to do that? Mm-hmm. We have a, I have a run a lab research laboratory at Wash U. And if you Google my name and Washington University, it'll get you there eventually. Well, I found you in a matter of seconds. So it was not, you're not a difficult man to find. Good. Well, thank you for coming on. You're very welcome, Vance. <laughs> Thanks for sticking around to the end of the interview. You're in for a special treat because Jim Tobin agreed that we could air a part of his legacy interview. In this clip, you'll hear him describe what it was like when he was a little kid and he decided he wanted to run away from home. We hope you enjoy this. And if you're interested in having me interview one of your loved ones, go to LegacyInterviews.com to find out more. As a little boy, I I got frustrated with something going on in the household and told him I was going to run away. And as I was walking out the door, my dad yelled, don't forget your boots. And uh, they found me um, several hundred yards away, stuck in the mud. <laughs> so I, I think that's the last time I ran away. <laughs> what sorts of chores were you responsible for as a kid? Well, um, we, we raised cattle and hogs. And um, so you, in the winter, you'd have to go chop a hole in the ice so the cows could drink. Um, and we were farrowing about a thousand head of pigs a year. So um, 
I took care of the fairing house when I was probably 12 years old. Um, so you're going out, letting out the sows, and feeding them, putting them back in, making sure that all the pigs are in good shape. Um, a lot of responsibility for a young child. I, we, we couldn't begin to give our children the same responsibility at that age. But um, I, don't, I don't regret. We learned a lot from that. What do you think is different? Why couldn't you do that? Well, we weren't on a farm. We didn't have a farm to, <laughs> to assign things. I did take the boy, our sons, um, our parish priest, when I was talking to him about this responsibility thing, bring him to the food pantry on Saturday morning. So I would get them up in the morning on Saturday and we'd go help box up or sack up food for the, the food pantry at St. Cronin's. And um, they would grumble about getting out of bed on Saturday morning. But I, I think once we got there, they, they got into it and it, it gave them a perspective on the world that, that they wouldn't have had otherwise. I, I think that was helpful. Yeah.